Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The New Statesman. I'm Megan Gibson, Executive Editor of Foreign in London. I'm Ido Vok, Europe Correspondent in Berlin. I'm Anusha Kellyan, Britain Editor in London. It's Thursday, the 9th of February. You're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, each Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Volodymyr Zelensky visited the UK this week, only his second trip abroad since the war began, following a crackdown on corruption within his government. I have come here and stand before you on behalf of the brave, on behalf of our warriors who are now in the trenches under enemy artillery fire, on behalf of our air gunners and every defender of the sky who protects Ukraine against enemy aircrafts and missiles. We discuss the hurdles standing in the way of Ukraine's EU membership. Then we discuss the renewed Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict and what's at stake for the region. We also take a listener's question on what the UK's economic situation means for its foreign policy in the long term. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky visited Europe this week. On Wednesday, he met with UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak in London in what marked his third visit to a foreign country since the war began, after visiting the US and Poland in December. Speaking to both Houses of Parliament, Zelensky thanked the UK for its military assistance to Ukraine, saying Britain had extended its helping hand when the world had not yet come to understand how to react to the Russian invasion. He thanked Britain for pledging Challenger 2 tanks, but he also requested modern fighter jets for his military, the next big ask to allies from his government. So Edio, I wanted to begin with you here, focusing mostly on Zelensky's visit and speech to UK Parliament. I know we mentioned at the top that he also visited France, but focusing on his big grand speech to UK politicians, 
What was the take from his speech? This is the second time that Zelensky had gone abroad since war broke out almost a year ago. The first was to the US, I think about a month or so ago. And now this is the second time he's gone abroad. We're actually recording before he's arrived in France. So we don't exactly know what he's going to say in France, but they're briefing that he's going to meet with President Macron and German Chancellor Scholz while he's in France. But it's, I think, no surprise that Zelensky chose the UK for his second trip abroad. The UK was, as Zelensky correctly said, one of the first and strongest backers of Ukraine, providing military equipment faster than many other allies, although lots of other countries have now caught up. But Uniquely, the UK is viewed very positively in Ukraine, I think. Boris Johnson in particular, who was in charge for when war broke out, is viewed incredibly positively in, in Ukraine. There's a kind of real cult of personality around him. And Zelensky alluded to that when he was addressing both houses of parliament, even though obviously Johnson is no longer in power and is probably viewed less positively by many of those present than in Zelensky's home country. And Zelensky does what he usually does when he visits foreign countries. He alluded to the shared history of Ukraine and the UK and said that he'd gone to the war rooms where Churchill commanded the British armies during World War II and sat on the armchair. And he said that he was asked how he felt when he sat on the armchair when he visited before war broke out. And he said he felt something, but now he knew really what Churchill felt. He's come to, I think, reiterate the strength of the alliance between the two countries, but also now that Ukraine has been pledged tanks by the UK and other countries, he's come, he's demanding the next big ask, which is fighter jets, which have not been promised by countries like the UK, but which Zelensky has asked for. So that seems like it's going to be the next kind of big line in the sand. Yeah, I wanted to ask you specifically about Zelensky's particular shout out to Boris Johnson, which was very warm and I guess quite interesting because obviously Rishi Sunak is prime minister. This is a big moment for him as prime minister. He was there to greet Zelensky on the tarmac. He didn't quite get the same... I guess you could say, love, it seemed, from Zelensky in a personal manner, the way that that Boris Johnson did, which, I mean, our cover story this week is on Rishi Sunak as the prime minister who wasn't there. And I think that just, it, it chimes a little bit with this moment, which Rishi Sunak didn't really seem to have much of a presence during the speech. I don't know if I was the only one who really like took that away from that, or if Anoush, if you, if you thought thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, he really specifically thanked Boris Johnson. I think that was probably the most prominent thank you to an individual in the speech, although he did thank Sunak for the tanks. But yes, I think that overshadowed Sunak somewhat. And actually, we know that Sunak's enthusiasm for standing by Ukraine, while rhetorically it's the same as Johnson used to declare. It was leaked last December that Sunak actually had ordered an internal assessment of the significance of British military aid in Ukraine. So there is a sense that he's crunching the numbers behind the scenes to see whether or not it's we're getting our value for money now, support for Ukraine. And this plea for fighter jets as well, it doesn't look like that's likely to happen, not least because Britain's military is quite diminished anyway. It seemed Downing Street had preempted this request a bit. There was a promise that we'd bolster our training to Ukraine troops to include fighter pilots, but only to fly what Downing Street has called sophisticated NATO standard fighter jets in the future. So I think they're just talking about (laughs) jets in general rather than British jets. So it's unlikely that he will make good on Zelensky's 
quite bold request, actually. I think he made the atmosphere quite awkward in that hall when he gave the gift that he gave to the Cobbins was this fighter pilot jet of one of their successful pilots. And he said, give us the wings to protect our freedom. But it's quite unlikely that the UK is going to be forthcoming in that request. Having said that, there are now rumours that the UK will provide Storm Shadow cruise missiles to Ukraine, which would increase their capacity for long-range strikes, I think, from the current front line pretty much up to the Russian border in a lot of cases. And if that were to be the case, that would be a significant help to Ukraine. And it's one thing that they're quite enthusiastic for. And I think the UK has said it will provides Ukraine with longer range capabilities without going into detail. So it remains to be seen whether these are actually the Storm Shadow cruise missiles. But if they are, it would be quite a big step, although obviously not not quite F-16s or F-35s, but very significant nonetheless. Another thing that really struck me listening to the speech, and I don't know if either of you have thoughts on this, but I was somewhat surprised about the amount of attention given to the monarchy. He mentioned William, he mentioned Kate, he spoke a lot about Prince Charles. There were some really good lines about how the king was an Air Force pilot and in Ukraine, all Air Force pilots are kings, which chimed well and got a lot of applause. Yeah, I noticed that. I think it's a general sort of... And this sounds a bit patronising, but I think you generally do get this excitement when foreign leaders visit the UK about the pomp and ceremony that the UK can provide. I mean, even the hall that he was standing in, it's the oldest part of Parliament, this 11th century hall. It's very grand in there. You really do feel the weight of history when you stand in there, even though that sounds like a bit of a cliche. And I suppose that ties into all of the things that we have to offer in terms of soft power, people wearing ceremonial outfits. And he mentioned the delicious English tea that he drank last time he visited. And you could see that contrast even when he walked in his khaki sweatshirt and he was among all of these people in the ceremonial dress of these kind of events that happen in the Palace of Westminster. So I wonder if there's a bit of that going on. But also he talked about strong British character as well and maybe he it was a bit of a throwback to how Britain was once viewed in the world and I expect that's part of why there there was so much enthusiasm. You just could see it on the look on MPs and Lords' faces when they were watching the speech. There was a lot of adoring applause, a lot of sycophantic tweets. I think not only do we want to show our support for Ukraine... I think there's a lot of enthusiasm for the way that the UK's reaction to the Ukraine invasion has been one of sort of unity. And we've come in for quite a bit of praise from Zelensky. And you can't say that for the UK at the moment on many other subjects. So I think there's a bit of pride and a bit of nostalgia that comes into it too. Ido mentioned we're recording this before he he visits France and meets with Macron and Scholz. I somehow feel that the warm words that we've received in the UK won't be matched by the rhetoric that he he shares with Scholes. That might not be the case, but something strikes me is that the UK is unique in this and it really gives a sense of pride, a national pride that, (laughs) and who says, is slowly lacking on many other fronts at the moment. I, I like I'm British and I live abroad and there aren't that I, it's a bit of an understatement to say that there aren't very many things on which the UK is seen positively by many people I meet but the Ukraine support is very much an exception to that and we haven't had any of the kind of accusations of appeasement or of dragging that have dogged so many other countries Germany France the UK really hasn't had any of that and I can definitely see this as a kind of unifying moment of national pride as Anoush says that unifies across the political spectrum across different parties beliefs and so on 
And we obviously have to raise the point that like Zelensky isn't just doing this flattery to her just to share his goodwill and his good vibes with his allies. He is asking for things. He's asking for more material, more aid. He's visiting Brussels later this week. And Ukraine is in the process of trying to gain EU membership, which it has been suggested that will happen. But the timeline of what the EU is expecting, I think what Ukraine is expecting is not aligned. Ido, obviously, you've written a great piece that we'll link in the show notes that the background of Ukraine's kind of drive to join the EU is Zelensky's own push to eradicate corruption within his own government, which has been ticking along in the last few weeks, but it's really ramped up. So I was wondering if you could explain the context of what's happening there. Ukraine has been promised EU membership by the EU Commission, but as you correctly said, they there were probably different expectations on timelines on the Ukrainian side and on the European side. And of course, there's the issue, the immediate issue of the war, but there's also institutional reform, which the EU demands of aspiring member states as they negotiate their accession. And one of the biggest issues in Ukraine is that it's a very corrupt country. It was ranked the third most corrupt country in Europe by Transparency International in 2022, behind only Azerbaijan and Russia. And there are famously entrenched examples of oligarchy and corrupt officials and so on. And although for much of the duration of the war, Zelensky had appeared to really not be prioritizing the fight against corruption, there have been a number of very high profile moves in the past few weeks against officials accused of corruption. For example, two former deputy defense ministers were forced to resign following revelations that they were overseeing the purchase of rations and military equipment at inflated prices. There was a former deputy minister of infrastructure who was who was dismissed from his post, I think, accused of embezzling $400,000. Another deputy defense minister who had allegedly a million dollars in cash hidden in the sofa found during a police raid. And these are only a few examples. There are also many more. There's really been a kind of additional push by the by Zelensky's government in the past few weeks against corruption and attempt to signal that his government is serious about tackling corruption. Now, why is he doing this? I think there are two main reasons. So the first is that there is pressure, as you said, from international partners. There's the question of EU accession. The EU will not allow a new member with a record on corruption that is, quite frankly, as bad as Ukraine's without the country demonstrating that it's made a lot of progress and a lot of reform on those issues. And actually, if you look at um, the member states which were formerly part of the communist bloc, so in Central and Eastern Europe, one of the biggest motivating factors for them to eliminate and to reduce corruption in their countries was the prospect of EU of EU membership and EU accession. And obviously, some of them may have backed since succeeding to the EU. But the point at which they acceded to the EU, they'd made a lot of a lot of progress on on that. But then also, of course, there's the military and financial aid which Western countries are providing to Ukraine, and it's billions and billions of dollars every month, the military equipment, financial aid, and so on. And those countries want Ukraine to show that is bluntly not being stolen, that it's not being siphoned off, that it's going to the causes that it's earmarked for. And then the second reason is public pressure from within Ukraine. Ukrainians have consistently ranked corruption as the second most important problem facing their country behind only relations with Russia. But the full-scale invasion last year turned what was perceived as a kind of governance problem, which made government less effective, into an emotional problem, because now graft is perceived as looting and 
marauding in times of war, stealing money from the war budget, stealing money from Ukraine's effort to defend its independence. And of course, when officials allegedly enrich themselves with hundreds of thousands of dollars, that stings all the more because the economy has collapsed over the past year. GDP is estimated to have fallen by about a third in 2022. And obviously, the economy has been reorientated towards a war effort. Most people are worse off in Ukraine than they were before the war. So in, in short, yeah, I think there's the international dimension and the domestic dimension. But of course, it remains to be seen to what extent this is a kind of substantive effort from Zelensky and not just because obviously corruption is a lot more than just a few corrupt officials who can be arrested in high profile raids. It's a kind of very complex institutional problem. And a lot of the efforts to actually uproot it will be probably less publicized, but no less important. And to what extent this is substantive rather than kind of demonstrative remains to be seen, I think. Yeah, I think I'm really glad you brought up the emotional point because there is something that just seems particularly egregious of corruption within the defense ministry at a time of war right ahead of the one year anniversary on February 24th of the full scale invasion when they're expecting a renewed onslaught from Russia. That's just something that like it really offends in a way that run of the mill corruption perhaps maybe doesn't. I don't think you know, there's a bit of light corruption in every country. I and mean, obviously the EU has been dealing with its own corruption scandal for the past few months itself. That's a good point, right? Ukrainians are used to corruption in their country. But what's been happening for the past year is clearly not business as usual for their country. Their entire lives, the entire history of their country has been completely upended. And the fact that business as usual, as they see it, continues within the government is what really rankles, I think. So in, in some ways, this gives Zelensky a kind of an opportunity to address some of the most entrenched interests, because obviously, the entire situation and condition of the country is so upended, it's not a normal situation by any means. So for example, he's moved against an oligarch, Ihor Kolomoisky, who he was previously viewed as very close to, when Zelensky famously played played the president of Ukraine on his TV show, Servant of the People, and named his political party, Servant of the People, and then on to be elected. Servant of the People was shown on Kolomoisky's TV channel, and he was always viewed as being quite close to Kolomoisky, and Kolomoisky is one of the people that he has moved against as president as part of this anti-corruption drive. So it's a probably pretty unique opportunity to move against corruption and to attack some of the entrenched interests. Yeah, it's definitely a subject I think we'll be returning to again. I mean, listeners of World Review will know that Ukraine and the war in Ukraine is a subject we cover pretty regularly. But now we're going to turn to the Caucasus, where since early December, the single road that connects Nagorno-Karabakh, the disputed territory within Azerbaijan's borders to Armenia, has been blocked. Azerbaijan claims the obstruction began as an environmental protest against mining, but Armenia says the Baku's regime orchestrated the roadblocks. As a result, the ethnic Armenians who reside in Nagorno-Karabakh are facing extreme shortages of food and amenities. Now, Anoush, you've written in the past for the New Statesman very movingly about this subject. So I want to start with you here. Could you briefly lay out the context of this decades-long dispute between Armenia and Azerbaijan? Sure. So I'm sure your listeners will probably remember us discussing and covering this back in 2020, although it goes back a lot longer than that. So the Lachin Corridor is seen as a lifeline for Armenians because it connects their land in the region of Nagorno-Karabakh to Armenia proper. And Nagorno-Karabakh is a region that Armenians call the Republic of Artsakh, and Armenia and Azerbaijan have been at war on and off over this land, historically Armenian land, but it was carved out and handed to the Azeris by Stalin 
uh, in the Soviet times. And this culminated in a big conflict in 2020 most recently. And the agreement that was supposed to end that conflict, although there's been breaches since, that included Russian peacekeepers protecting the Luchin Corridor, which is very politically precarious, of course, because it goes through officially Azeri territory, but via Armenian settlements. And yeah, as you said, last December, there were these Azeri citizens calling themselves eco-activists who blockaded the Latin Corridor in this sort of show of protest. But it stopped a lot of Armenians being able to get back to their homes in Nagorno-Karabakh. And it also ended up putting 120,000 or so Armenians who live there under siege. Uh, the Azerbaijan government also cut off the gas supply from Armenia to Nagorno-Karabakh. And I think that's sporadically been coming back on and going back off ever since. And it's escalating into a humanitarian emergency now because so much is running out, fresh food, essential medicine, fuel. And it, there's now rationing and price controls underway there. And there's been some pretty desperate reports from within the region, but actually there's not been a huge amount, and I don't want to criticise my fellow journalists, but there's not been a huge amount of coverage in the mainstream press here, at least, that I've seen. We've run a really good piece on this, actually, this week by a writer called Saurabh Amari, who has concluded that the West has chosen Azerbaijan over Armenia in its response to this latest development. Yeah, you mentioned the 2020 conflict, and that ceasefire was orchestrated by Putin. So what kind of leverage does Russia have in the region at the moment? This is the thing. Russia is supposed to be this ally of Armenia, this sort of historic protector of Armenia, but it's failed to keep the road open. And that was one of the main jobs of the Russian peacekeepers. But it's just one in a long line of disappointments for Armenians in this conflict by Russia. So since the war officially ended, like I said, in 2020, with that ceasefire that was brokered by Russia, there's been so many grim stories. You know, I'm very subjected to these stories because a lot of my relatives and friends in the Armenian diaspora will be sending me these links of breaches and violations of that ceasefire. Azerbaijan hasn't withdrawn its troops from internationally recognised Armenian land, for example, despite calls to from the US and France. And it's been accused of war crimes against Armenian prisoners of war. There's some quite horrible stories flying around about what's going on there. And then also Azerbaijan did begin shelling Armenia proper last September. So there's been, yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of flare-ups of this conflict. And Russia doesn't really seem to be anywhere to be seen. It refused to provide military aid there. There's been protests in Armenia actually about leaving that Moscow-led security alliance, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, and instead look towards Europe because there is this feeling of betrayal by Russia. And actually that was compounded when Nancy Pelosi visited last September and condemned the attacks by Azerbaijan. And she vowed America's ongoing support for Armenia. And that resonated actually with a lot of Armenians in the diaspora, at least because Biden actually recognised the Armenian genocide in 2021. So there is a sense that America is more on Armenia's side. And there's, yeah, there is a feeling of betrayal by Russia, but also looking to Europe to pay a little bit more attention. But then meanwhile, on the other hand, Europe has really wrapped up its gas imports from Azerbaijan since the war in Ukraine. And some feel that maybe has emboldened the regime there and given them a bit more license. Yeah, absolutely. The EU can express concern about what's going on with the blockade as much as it likes. But really, it's relying on Azerbaijan for double the gas imports that the continent gets from there by 2027. Ursula von der Leyen visited Baku last summer. She called Azerbaijan one of Europe's reliable, trustworthy partners. So, you know, the proof is in the action and they're relying on Azerbaijan. And that means that it has more influence. So again, sadly, I think there's probably another story that will be ticking along and will 
cover again. Anoush, hopefully we'll be able to have you again on soon to bring your expertise in the region. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But now it's time for a section that we like to call... You Ask Us. So Matt asks, what are the consequences of the UK's current economic situation, including low productivity, the IMF's forecasted drop in GDP, etc., and domestic woes, which include the state of the NHS, labor unrest, etc.? And how will this affect the country's place on the world stage? Anoush, sorry to throw it back to you again, but as our Britain editor, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on this. Yeah, look at me as a half Brit, half Armenian. I mean, <laughs> the news is really grim for me. Yeah, Britain is doing really badly compared to its peers at the moment. It's it, The most recent headline was that the IMF found that it's the only 
G7 economy forecast to shrink by 2023. It's had low productivity since 2008, and that's been a perennial problem. It's labelled as the productivity puzzle by economists here. It's so entrenched. We also have higher inflation here than the Eurozone, the EU as a whole, France and Germany, and one of the highest inflation rates in the whole of the G7 as well. So we're really not looking particularly good compared to our peers, although there's there are similar problems the world round. But I don't think the government can argue that we're really just being subject to the same global forces as everyone else. And because we're certainly not being as resilient to them. Although the government has definitely tried to make that argument. Yes, that is their argument. And you can see why they're tempted to make it because it's a very grim picture. We talk about the UK standing on the global stage. Obviously, Wednesday, there was a big, very tangible production of where we're seen when it comes to support for Ukraine. But how does that, how does our reputation for problems affect our standing with other allies? I think it really affects Britain's global reputation. I mean, I mean, this podcast is an example, but when any time I get asked on media to commentate on sort of British current affairs from foreign broadcasters, they're always they always ask me about Brexit and the damage that it's done. Whereas we're not, we're still it's getting there. It's becoming slightly less taboo, but we're still not fully having that debate in the UK itself. People are so scared of the sort of idea still of seeming to stamp on the will of the people or soften the UK's relationship in the EU in some way. You can see the fear in the Labour Party of suggesting that it would do anything like that if it came into government. There's no single market, no custom customs union in their plans as they say it. But, you know, everyone else can see the problem and we're seeing, we're seeing these stats at the moment. The OBR, the Office for Budget Responsibility that kind of does the sums on the government's economic picture, they say that the economy will shrink 4% in the long term relative to if we'd stayed in the EU. And there's this academic called John Springford, director of the Centre for Reform, who compares the UK as it is today to this sort of phantom UK in a parallel universe where it would have stayed in the EU. He calls it the doppelganger method. And his latest estimate is that Brexit's reduced the UK economy 5.5% by the second quarter of 2022. We're really starting to see the impact of Brexit on our economy and on our sort of long term prospects. And it is feeding into how the public here feel about Britain. So it's not just our allies, like you mentioned, it's not just around the world. People are questioning why, why we did this. It's also now happening among the public, too. So we ran this piece by a pollster called Joe Twyman, a really good piece. He revealed that just one in 20 Brits could name a specific way in which they'd personally benefited from Brexit. And leave voters were just eight percentage points more likely to name something than non-leave voters. So it's not like they're particularly enamoured with how it's gone either. And those and the top two benefits that people did mention were taking back control, which is simply a slogan, and the vaccine rollout. And while that was very successful, there are questions over how much Brexit did actually contribute to that. Maybe it did, you know. And there's only now one constituency in the whole country where more people disagree than agree that Britain was wrong to leave the EU. So it does feel a little bit like there's a shift in public opinion and that the British public are more likely to agree with those people that I mentioned in other countries who asked me why on earth did Britain decide to do this? And surely the economic woes that we see now must be partly down to this. I, I like that kind of sliding doors metaphor that you mentioned. <laughs> yeah. Universes. I wonder if Britain is the one that dies at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Anoush, thank you so much for coming on today. And thanks to all of you who've sent in your questions.
listeners, you can send in yours at newstatesmen.com slash youaskus or by tweeting at us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for our interview episode, where Katie will speak with Vergard Skirbeck, a Norwegian population economist and the author of Dis- Decline and Prosper, Changing Global Birth Rates and the Advantages of Fewer Children. If you're a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a good review. It really does help. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.